today. Can British theatre survive the COVID lockdown? When Boris Johnson asked the public to stop attending theatre, many of us didn't think about how dramatic that single change would be. But for artistic directors like Elizabeth Newman, it was instant. It's just very quiet, and theatres are not meant to be quiet. They're meant to be full of people. They're meant to be full of people brimming with ideas. Those people include vast audiences. 34 million of us go to the theatre each year. But since Covid hit, that number has been zero. Three months on, the industry is teetering on the brink of collapse, with fears that even when theatres can reopen, social distancing will make it impossible for them to survive. Without a bit of help, uh, 70% of these theatres will be closed by Christmas and they won't be able to reopen. We can't survive by selling only one ticket in two or ticket in three um, because it won't pay for the weekly costs. How many theatres do you fear might close this year? In a worst case situation, if there's no support, most of them. From The Guardian, I'm Anushka Astana. Today in Focus, is British theatre about to go out of business? After the Second World War, the government did not just pour money into health and welfare as it tried to rebuild society. It believed that people emerging from such a terrible period also needed the opportunity to access great arts and culture. So in 1946, they set up the Arts Council of Great Britain that began investing in theatre all over the country, including the Pitlochry Festival Theatre in the heart of Scotland. So an amazing man called John Stewart decided just post-war that what would be brilliant to do is to stick a tent in Pitlochry and make some theatre. So that's what he did. The money given to the Pitlochry for its earliest plays was reinvested time and again. 70 years on, there is now a permanent theatre in the Scottish Highlands that employs over 100 people. We sit on the riverbank of the River Tummel next to the Salmon Ladder, which people come all over the world to see, um, and it's beautiful. In 2020, as the country emerges from another crisis, Pitlochry is now being steered by artistic director Elizabeth Newman. So the way I tend to work is comedy, comedy, tragedy, comedy, comedy, odd. <laughs> and I think it's I, that makes it sound really simple, but in a way it kind of is. It's about knowing that most times your life is a comedy, even when something really sad happens, it quickly becomes a comedic story. I'm interested in this genre of odd. <laughs> odd. Well, no, that's that's how my mum refers to it. She goes, is it one of your funny plays? Is it one of your sad plays? Or is it one of your odd plays? <laughs> <laughs> and how was the theatre doing financially up until the current crisis? Well, we just got back on track. <laughs> yeah, there's, there's a, I think that's, that's called irony. Two weeks before the pandemic, we'd finally moved to a really uh, far better place than when I arrived um, 18 months ago. We were back in the black. Now is the time for everyone to stop non-essential contact with others. We were in the theatre watching the news. It became clear as soon as Boris Johnson, our Prime Minister, said... Avoid pubs, clubs, theatres and other such social venues. 
that we had to shut because otherwise we would be irresponsible. The challenge that we had is by um, Boris Johnson, our Prime Minister, saying that it meant that our insurers wouldn't give us any money for business disruption and or closure. Because it wasn't telling you to close, it was asking people not to go. Exactly, it wasn't instructing us, it was instructing the public. How did it feel when you heard him say that? I guess we were quite angry because the decision to advise the public and not advise the organisations was the first of many blows to come financially and therefore for the survival of the theatre. And it just felt like in that moment he had protected insurers over really important charities and businesses that make the UK what it is. And that was not surprising necessarily, but really disappointing. Am I right in thinking they changed that within a week? They did, but by that point we'd already closed and therefore we'd already taken the decision. So you're not insured? No. And you've not been throughout? No. And that is the majority of theatres across the UK. What did you do? What happened? We were catapulting so quickly towards bankruptcy. And I remember so clearly being sat in a colleague's car, because I don't drive, there's an irony to living in Highland Persia. And um, I was listening to the radio. The government has taken the unprecedented step of announcing that it will pay up to 80% of the wages of people unable to work because of the economic shutdown caused by coronavirus. And I just couldn't stop crying for about 40 minutes because, and the car was shaking. I was just so relieved that some money was coming for people. Um, and and now it's not coming again. And I think that's where we're now entering the next phase as the job retention scheme known as furlough <laughs> to all of us um, has changed is that now we have to make some really hard decisions in order to mean the organisation can survive and then grow again. It's impossible to overstate the impact of the lockdown on theatres across the country. Last year, more people went to watch plays than attended football matches. But theatres are totally reliant on their audience. Without it, it's not just the pit lockery that is struggling. Every theatre in the country has gone into freefall, with some already out of business. Guardian's arts and culture correspondent Lanry Beckery has been reporting on it. Theatres started to close and become insolvent and go into administration. So the Nuffield in Southampton, which is a which is a big regional theatre, it's like one of the big 15 regional theatres um, outside of London. Uh, the theatres in Southport closed, Leicester Haymarket. They all went into administration and then you had a situation where Shakespeare's Globe, which doesn't get Arts Council funding, um, opened in 1997, huge, big international success, but it's saying, look, you know, we're this kind of model for the non-subsidised art sector, but this is a massive financial crisis. And if we don't, there's no mechanism to help us, basically. And then in the West End, you had, you had figures like Sonia Friedman, who's an incredibly successful West End producer. She's the new Harry Potter thing that's that's was doing really good business before COVID-19. You know, she came out and said she predicted about a thousand theatres are going to are gonna close without big government intervention. Cameron McIntosh, again, he he's a massive really well-known uh, West End producer, did Les, Les Mis and a lot of other stuff. From the moment that 
social distancing has gone, we, we will take us four to five months to actually get the actors back together to redo the mothball theatres. I mean, it's a huge thing. Each big musical has about 200 people working yeah. on, in that one building. Um, you know, calling on the government to step in because, because they're worried this is going to have a catastrophic effect on, on theatres and that some, frankly, will go out of business and never reopen. I mean, what you're describing is an industry in freefall. Here, you've got an industry where already a number of theatres are going under. They're begging the government for money. Regional theatres obviously being worst here. I was speaking to a playwright the other day who said they think the West End's going to go under too. What has the government response been? Um, the, the government's response initially was was fairly quick in that. The Arts Council came out with this emergency funding uh, measures of £160 million, which sounds like quite a lot of money, maybe, to the layman. But when you start breaking it down, that's that's hardly anything. Like If you think of the uh, the National Theatre, so if it's costing them £5 million quid a month to stay open, then within a year that's going to be about £60 million. The The combination of that, the furlough scheme, and support for freelancers is just about working, although like quite a few people have fallen through the cracks. Oliver Dowden, who's obviously the culture secretary at the moment, he, he published a letter in The Observer, and it was interesting to see, he was he was writing about how we need to support theatre, we need to support the arts. You know, he was talking about creative solutions, and they're going to put together this, this centralised body, uh, a kind of advisory panel of people, including, you know, people involved in, in big West End uh, theatres to come through a package of things that's, that, is, that is going to support the sector. But I feel the feeling I get from a lot of people is, that's all well and good having this centralised committee that's going to come up with ideas. But when you're not out in the regions themselves, you don't know the acute issues that they're facing. And maybe this centralised response isn't going, to do, isn't going to do the business. Will you survive? Uh, will we survive? Yeah, we will. We will get to the other side because we have to. And we have to because we're an artistic beacon for Scotland and for audiences and for artists, of course. Um, but also because we're the largest employer in Highland Perthshire. You know, an entire region is dependent on us surviving. So we have to keep going, don't we? What have you done in the last couple of months to keep the theatre going without the physical building? We launched our online series. So you get pieces of poetry, opera. And today, I'm going to show you how to make not one, not two, but three musical instruments. There's a kind of ten volume dictionary of Scots language, so I thought I'd teach you five words. Some incredible different performances from our ensemble, but also some activities to do at home. So learning about how to do origami, dance classes, music classes. So it's all about keeping you entertained and keeping you company. And the next thing we did, which is linked to company, was I was really aware that people were going to be very lonely. Lots of people that come to our theatre come on their own, have normally lost partners. Coming to the theatre is their social activity where they talk to people. So we set up Telephone Club, which is where we can ring people at home and keep them company. And then we also pulled forward loads of commissions for a three-year project that we'd launched in December called Shades of Tay, which is kind of like our love letter to Scotland. And I was just keen to get, even though it's really small amounts of money, but small amounts of money out to freelancers and start to generate new work that we can put online and then when possible, do it outside and then finally do it indoors when we can be indoors together as well. 
You've probably entirely forgotten a conversation between us one evening at Barton Park in which I alluded to a lady I'd once known as resembling in some measure your sister. I have not forgotten it. We did an online Zoom performance of Sense and Sensibility, um, which we should have been producing this summer. Hers for me was, I believe, fervent as the attachment of your sister to Mr Willoughby. And it was, though from a different cause, no less unfortunate. Wow, so what's it like directing all the actors in different locations over Zoom? Good work, guys. Any questions off the back of that? Um, It's been a learning experience, but it's been all right. You're clearly working really hard to keep both that outreach role going, but also to put on plays. But that's not going to make up the building being closed. How bad are things financially? So we're in a situation that if we don't make significant redundancies, we'll be bankrupt in November. Gosh, that's hard. Yeah, so we have to do it. And what we're doing is we're... Uh, making the decisions based on the roles that we need to continue the engagement with the public to mean that they do return to the organisation. And we have to be able to get a volume of audiences in, otherwise we can't cover our costs. I mean, what makes me really sort of frustrated is when people put up the Berliner Ensemble picture and it's like, in Germany, their organisations are subsidised by 80 to 90%. We have to make 85% of our income from audiences. We can't have only 10 people in the audience. We have to play to 70%. So what you're saying is that even when theatre is allowed to reopen, the social distancing rules that will need to remain in place are going to mean there's a lot of challenges. Yeah, there's a lot of challenges because audience confidence is going to be really low. People are going to think, if I choose to go, am I putting my health at risk? And not just health, but my life. So we need to find a way of keeping engagement, keeping the relationship going for the audience, keep being there for them, keep that dialogue. So when there comes time, we can do it together slowly and at their pace and look after them. And we also need, I think, which I'm sure will come, it would be great if central government could really help us with the recapitalisation of theatres, support us during that initial time when confidence isn't going to be as high as we need it to be, numbers might not be up to their their usual and just to help us get through that hump because if we can get past the hump we can keep going. There seemed to be agreement across the industry that the only way for theatre to survive is a rescue package from the government. Director Sam Mendes said that is what is needed to tackle the biggest challenge to Britain's cultural life since World War II. Lanry spoke about the government response to all of this and some of the language they've used, including creative solutions. What do you make of that? I can only really speak about us. I mean, we've been using creative solutions for the last couple of years. So, I mean, I'm not averse to a creative solution. I think that word creative can sometimes be loaded because basically what it says is no more money, but think differently. And I'm I'm not one of those artistic directors who endlessly believes they should be given more subsidy. I don't, I really don't. I think times are really hard. I think there's a lot of difficult decisions that are made. I think when, if I was faced with those decisions, I would be prioritising people's health and those critical services. Of course I would, um, because it's an acute situation. I think what I would be asking for is not a reduction in subsidy, It's very hard to think creatively if you're fearing having your basic removed. 
And I'd ask for just as much dialogue as possible. You know, all I ever want to know is what do they need from us? I want to ask the question back, you know, what do they see the role of regional theatres being in the recovery and the renewal of the UK? We can fulfil a role. We do fulfil a role year on year anyway. They don't need me to repeat again the economics around what art puts back into the economy because I'm sure they're sick of us saying it, but we do. Just tell us how art puts money back into the community. So we know for every pound that we're invested in, we put £3 back into the economy. By us being here, we put um, just under £30 back into the local economy as well. And we can do that again and we can do other things for them if we can have a good debate about how best to go about that. Coming up, could this crisis change the type of shows that theatres choose to put on? Lanry, we know that the lockdown has been a disaster for huge parts of the economy, not just theatre. We've been hearing about how theatres do a lot of outreach within their communities and also provide a local economic boost. But they do also tend to serve a slightly more privileged audience and everyone is crying out for money. Why should theatres be given support? I mean, I think the the theatre industry has done a great job, not only of the outreach work that you spoke about, but recently there does seem to be a kind of tangible change like within the industry. Yes, the figures aren't good in terms of representation. Yes, the figures are good in terms of diversity, whether it's gender or whether it's whether it's to do with race, ethnicity or uh, disabled access, for example. But when I was going to these theatre shows and you look around the audiences and they are becoming slightly more diverse, it felt as if British theatre is on the right path to addressing some of those issues. And you heard a lot of voices coming out and supporting that, whether it's from the Arts Council or the National Theatre or from the Black and Minority Ethnic Artists and Directors who are, who are all over this country. And it, it feels like if if theatre isn't supported, the first thing that will go will will be that kind of thing. And the work's going to become more and more predictable and safe. So I think an interesting example of, of a piece of theatre which started in, in regional theatre and then has transferred to the West London and gone on become a, a big hit was everybody's talking about Jamie. There's a clock on the wall and it's moving too slow It's got hours to kill and a lifetime to grow And I'm holding my breath It's about a kid who um, starts to cross-dress and he ha- the problems that he has at school and then that transferred to London, down to London and then it transferred to the West End it was on at the Shaftesbury, uh, Shaftesbury Avenue and I think that's the kind of work that if there isn't a comprehensive package from the government, that means that places like Sheffield Crucible might not be able to take chances on a work like that. No one knew that was going to be a massive hit. No one had any idea that's going to be turned into a film, you know, Warp films who were also from Sheffield decided that they're going to back that and, and make a musical out of it. And dozens of black and minority ethnic artistic directors and other senior figures in theatre have written to the government about that exact concern, haven't they? It was interesting because it called for the government to include them in the conversation about how theatre is going to be saved, which I thought was quite telling because it implies that they, they haven't been so far or that they feel excluded. Those those figures are people who you're seeing more and more within the industry. They're being interviewed more and more. Their work's resonating more and more. For example, you know, National Theatre Live scheme, which has been incredibly popular where they show former works that they've put on on YouTube. You know, recently they had the Barbershop Chronicles by Anua Elams, who's a, a British-Nigerian playwright. Language changes. It's the evolution of pigeon. No, no, pigeon is different. Uh-huh. It's being corrupted. You know, that's the kind of work that you really 
I just can't, I couldn't, when I first started going to theatre, I couldn't imagine something like that would be on a British stage. Throw it, throw it. Now, my son, he sings, we have come again. <laughs> and I think what black and minority ethnic artists and directors are worried about is that when people are trying to fight and find this money that they, that they need in order to survive, the first thing that will be out of the door will be that progress that's been made and that and that's been hard earned. That's that's decades of work for groups of all kinds of backgrounds, including, you know, working class writers. You know, James Graham's been incredibly vocal over this period, you know, and he's, he's probably one of the UK's best known playwrights. You know, he worked on on shows like Ink, which was which was a massive success a few years ago, and then also he's, he's transversed his skills onto onto the small screen. So, so he wrote Brexit: The Uncivil War. Down, hit him again and again, right? With three hundred and fifty million pounds and Turkey. And Quiz as well, which was recently on ITV. The man who has the questions may be king, but the man who has all the answers is God. Are you ready to play? Um, and he's he's really got into the social mores of, of this country over the last kind of 10 years or 15 years and really told us something about ourselves. And, you know, he's saying that it'll be harder for people like me to get into this industry after COVID-19. And I don't think that's, that's a place where people want to be. If the worst case scenario happens and a thousand theatres shut, what does it mean for the creative industries in this country? Well, I suppose the the immediate thing is that, as we've talked about, these these hubs of the community, which which theatres often are, will will disappear. So there won't be places for people to do all the outreach work that we spoke about, or to be able to socialise and and see the kind of uh, develop their own creative lives within within the city that they live in. So is that immediate kind of obvious shock to the system? I suppose in terms of like talent, that means that this kind of conveyor belt of talent which we've got in this country, which I think we take for granted. You know, we've got fantastic writers in this country, and it's not—it's not an accident. It's because they've been developed over years and decades, and through through this theatre system, that will go. Which means that there'll be a knock-on effect for TV, for film, um, for a lot of the other creative industries, because the the kind of content which they thrive off just won't won't exist. It won't be being written. It's going to mean that we are we're worse off as a country creatively. And I think you know, I think we do in Britain sometimes take for granted the creative industries that we've got and the fact that we'll just always produce great actors and we'll always produce great talent and it'll always be diverse and, and have loads of people in it and we'll be able to see ourselves in that work. That's That wasn't always the case and it doesn't have to be always be the case going forwards. Just finally, if local theatres are lost, how difficult would it be to build them up again? Well, it's taken 70 years to get us to this point in Pitlochry. I would hazard a guess it would take another 70 years to build it back to a place of where it could be recognised as a beacon. We're going to have mass unemployment, severe mental health challenges. It's going to be very, very hard. And I think what we have to do is remember what 1946 post-war decision-making did, which is it prioritised the important things to remember, health and art. The health to mean that we can thrive as as humans, and then the art that means we're trying to help civilization thrive as people. Art and culture and places where stories can be told and ideas can be shared and interrogated and challenge can be placed at your you know your feet is very important if we want to create a society that is equal. Elizabeth, thank you so much. Thank you. That was Elizabeth Newman, Artistic Director of the Pitlochry Festival Theatre in Scotland, and Lanry Bakery, Arts and Culture Correspondent at The Guardian, 
do go to theguardian.com to read more of his work and other pieces about the situation facing theatres at the moment. That's it for today. This episode was produced by Elizabeth Cassin. Sound design was by Axel Cucutier. The executive producers are Nicole Jackson and Phil Maynard. We'll be back tomorrow. Thank you.